I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. Throughout the month of June, millions of people around the world mark Pride, an annual celebration of LGBT rights and community. This year, the festivities hold particular significance. It's 50 years since the Stonewall riots, when a violent police raid on a New York gay bar sparked a global movement. But they'll also be marching in protest at continuing discrimination that many LGBT people still face daily. So this week, we're asking how much progress has Pride made? My guest today was one of the first writers to bring gay and trans characters to a mainstream audience. Armistead Maupin began publishing weekly dispatches, his Tales of the City in a San Francisco newspaper back in the 1970s. In them, the open-hearted, pot-smoking, transgender Anna Madrigal presides over a magical place. So, how long have you lived here at 28 Barbary Lane? I moved here in 1966. And I suppose it was a different place then, but in some ways, not at all. At 28 Barbary Lane live Marianne Singleton, an ingenue from Ohio, Michael Mouse Tolliver, gay and looking for love, and a host of other bohemians. Their adventures became nine novels and a hit but controversial TV series. Now Muppin has teamed up with Netflix to reunite the original cast and crew with some fresh faces and telling some new tales of a new generation in queer America. Once you feel seen, like Anna Madrigal makes you feel seen, you don't want to leave. Armistead Muppin, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you very much. So what brought you back here to Barbary Lane and to its inhabitants? Oh, well, I wanted the story to keep going on. I mean, I've been writing for 43 years now, and it seems to have a life of its own. And I loved its first television incarnation 25 years ago. And... uh, Netflix offered a chance to go global with the story. It transformed a lot of lives of LGBT people in Europe and in uh, the States when the first one came out, and I think it'll do the same for countries where gay people are still thrown off of the roof and uh, executed for being just for being themselves. And let's go back to 1976 when you started publishing the original stories mm. from which the, the Tales of the City came. It was in a San Francisco newspaper. What was the reaction then? You know, I worried about it because it was introducing gay characters for the first time. Imagine that, the very fact that there were gay and lesbian characters and a trans character in this story enraged some, a limited number, but some readers of the newspaper because we were, we were made to be invisible for a long, long time. We weren't allowed in the culture. But it, I got them, basically. I got them hooked. 
And even the people who were claiming to be horrified were buying the paper eagerly the next day to see what was happening to these people. And once it went into fiction, once it became a series of of books, did that change? Because the characters, in a way, they'd proved themselves. If you're putting your characters out there or stories into a newspaper, it can be a bit here today, gone tomorrow, but they took on a life of their own. And we all thought we knew someone like everybody in the book. Yeah, yeah. People made it their own family. It's funny looking at it from my perspective because I see a lot of myself in all the characters. That's the way I wrote them. But many, many people claimed that they knew the people I was writing about and they had friends exactly like Mrs. Madrigal and Mona and Michael. It became very personal, very quick. And uh, that's why it survived, I think. And the Barbary Lane that we see today, what has changed for its inhabitants? So much has changed in the world, but what's changed for them? Well, uh, a lot of them are broke. They've always been broke and they haven't worried a whole lot because Mrs. Madrigal, the landlady, is extremely lenient. But uh, there are people represented there who are transgender, who are non-binary, who don't identify with any gender. Uh, It's a much more racially diverse population than I created. I was a little southern boy when I wrote that story and I didn't feel I could believably write about black characters, for instance. That was stupid of me. Uh, And I had to learn, you know, a writer has to write about everybody. But they're pretty much the same. They're they're all looking for love. They're making themselves silly in the process. Everything's different and everything's the same in terms of the, the way they relate to the world. And here's an interesting paradox about the whole idea. Is it intended to reflect a culture which, as you say, was hidden or forced to be on the margins and to say, here it is, you know, the people all around us? Or is it a kind of escapism? I think your showrunner, Laurie Morelli, described it as a magical place, a little outside the real world. It's always been slightly enchanted, even though it's telling a story about people that who you may not be familiar with, you know. Uh, there's a, there's a storyline in the current tales where a happy lesbian couple is suddenly disrupted because one of the members of the couple changes her sex. She undergoes mm-hmm. trans surgery. And uh, they try to make it work because they love each other, really. It's just still the same person, but it gets complicated. You're excited. No, I'm not. You're passing and you're excited. What's wrong with that? I swear to God, if you started on your gender as a construct speech right now, I will throw this cake at you. Look, all I'm saying is we know we're queer. No one's taking that from us. A couple of queers walk down the street and no one knows it. Are they still queer? And those aren't problems that were, they may have been around 40 years ago, but I wasn't aware of them. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, did, how did you feel about that? Do you think that they were around and that you didn't well, spot them? Or do probably. you feel that you probably were immersed in a, a different aspect of the culture and that our attention is now I think my little white gay male self was looking at that culture at the time, and I was, I'm proud of the fact that I introduced that to the world. But um, I wasn't tremendously familiar with the trans culture. There wasn't much of a culture, really, in those days. Uh, Anna was a – Mrs. Madrigal was an exceptional person who had changed her sex uh, early on. So 
I've tried to, you know, Mrs. Madrigal says in one of the recent books, you don't have to keep up, dear. You just have to keep open. And that's what I've tried to do. I'm 75 years old, and I want everybody to be included in this story as much as possible. And we have an amazing writer's room that created this. Every age and gender and <laughs> it's, it's an amazing group of people. And the stories just kind of bloomed out of the writer's room because people could share their own stories. It's a predominantly gay cast and crew, all queer directors and writers. How important do you think that is? Well, when I first heard that the writer's room was going to be all queer, eight people, all of them queer, I said, well, maybe we ought to have at least a token straight person in there. Yes, and did you think about that? I thought about it briefly, and then I thought, well, I was only, only queer around when I wrote the thing in the first place. I mean, it was all my consciousness that created that, including the straight characters. And gay people have been writing straight storylines for years, and they know how to do it. So I wasn't terribly bothered by it. But then it gets complicated, doesn't it? And some people think it gets too complicated when you, you map onto who's this person in real life and who are they playing on the screen and who has the right to play whom. Mm. Uh, just give a, a flavor of, of some of your characters for listeners. So the young Anna is played by a trans actress by Jen Richards, who was nominated for an Emmy for her web miniseries, Her Story. Is that in itself a very important casting choice or is she just the right person for the job? Uh, it was both. She's certainly the right person for the job. When people see this series, they're going to realize what a brilliant piece of casting that was. You know, there's, there's an actually an active effort in Hollywood being made to give these roles to actors that are, have never had roles before, because, specifically because they were trans. The same is true with the out-of-the-closet gay actors. Uh, Murray Bartlett is the first Michael Tolliver in the history of the series who's ever been openly gay. I was thrilled about that because I know that it brings something extra to his performance. He feels it very personally. So it's a mixed bag. When we get to the state where everything's equal and, and gay people aren't severely discriminated against in terms of casting, I'll worry about that. But mm. right now it's only added to the story. What about the language around this? Do you, what do you feel about phrases like cisgender? Do they come tripping naturally off your... They do now. Yeah. It's a handy word. I talk about my grandmother who was the inspiration for Anna Madrigal and now I say she was cisgender, meaning... She was born a woman and uh, not impersonating one or living as one. So I find it very handy in that way. And so is this actress, Olympia Dukakis, you're playing a trans character. You don't think some people might say, well, why didn't you cast a trans well, she, actor? Well, first of all, she originated this role 25 years ago. And that was an historic moment when she took on the role of a transgender woman. And she's been with us every step of the way in terms of supporting LGBT rights. She didn't have to be talked into it. It's not some current fashionable thing she's doing. The same is true of Laura Linney, who's just been a big activist and the strongest ally for gay people I've ever known, a person with a name that's an ally. So um, Olympia gets a, a free card <laughs> on that. And we've cast, uh, as you mentioned, a trans actor. Jen Richards to play the young Anna Madrigal. And there was this picture of the premiere in New York that just made me weep when I saw it. It was Olympia and Jen hugging, embracing very. And I thought, here is a woman who made it possible for this other woman to play her 
25 years down the line. And yet, when we look at arguments now and debates about gender, there has been a, a shift, hasn't there, since you started writing about this very diverse community. And there are many new attentions between LGBT movement and certain strands of feminism. Sometimes they sort of flare up in places that we probably hadn't anticipated then. What it means to be a woman is in itself contested. Do you acknowledge that it's much harder to think your way through this and to be fair, to do the right thing in this argument than when your movement began? Uh, The most civilized women I know are totally for trans rights. Uh, well, I don't, I a don't, lot of feminists do have problems with aspects of trans rights. Don't what? They? There's a man pretending to be a woman? Is that what they're saying? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not you know, going to channel other people's arguments here, but one example would be the ability to kind of self-describe and where that gets you. Are you then entitled to say that you are all the things that someone who was born biologically a woman is. That, that's the area of this debate. Yeah, and I yeah. wondered, without necessarily going into any sort of particular example, do you feel that there is a complication there? Is there a sort of philosophical, moral difficulty? Not to me, but I'm not a woman. Uh, I just have to talk to, think about the women that I know. And uh, as I say, they, most of them support the notion of trans rights. It's hard to be a woman. It's even harder to be a man who's made himself into a woman to withstand the criticism of society. And I don't see what that takes away from any degree of feminism. If we look around Barbary Lane and everything it stands for, I see in it a kind of communitarianism, what we call in politics, a sort of a view of community as having a life that's more than just being a pleasant place to live. It has a value yeah, in yeah. itself. And I think that's one of the reasons, as well as feeling enchanted, in your word, is also why one sort of thinks, God, I'd like to live there. You know, it's, I call it logical family. I have a memoir called that, and I coined that term about 10 years ago, as opposed to your biological family. Your logical family. Yeah. Because you elect to have it. Because you elect to have it. It makes sense for you. My birth family didn't really make sense. They were worshipping the Civil War and continued to do so and vote for politicians that were very, very anti-gay. You grew up in... Even as I became famous as a gay activist and writer, they were still voting for Jesse Helms, one of the leading homophobes in the U.S. Senate. I love them, but they were no good to me really, in the long run, because they couldn't relate to my life, and, uh, and I wanted people that could. And so that was the solution for me to simply, I didn't divorce anybody. <laughs> and sometimes people say I divorced my family. That's hard to do. For the most part, I, I looked for my sustenance elsewhere. The idea of a sort of community and a communitarianism about somewhere like Barbary Lane, it is also an extent it has a kind of unwritten rules, and it's, it could be seen as sometimes a bit constricting. And I remember this is back in, in the first series of books, uh, one of the later ones, when Mary Ann's career takes off, and she goes off and becomes a pushy journalist. I can't think why I identified with her. <laughs> I identified with her, too. <laughs> Did you? Uh, she was sort I, of I, me. I thought every... she was getting a bit badly treated because, you know, because she got up early in the morning and she was on the treadmill and clearly it was going to be terrible for her relationship. But I'm like, uh, yeah, I was a bit with her, and I, I wondered whether you I related to her. I totally related to her. The question I was asked most often in connection to the books was, why does Marianne become such a bitch? That offended me because kind of I was Marianne. <laughs> I, I, so, I identified with her in many, many ways. 
And I didn't think she did. I think she she wanted a career. I must come to Stonewall, the sort of heart of, of what we wanted to talk to you about besides the, the drama and the books. And the flashback episode culminates in a fictional depiction of the 1966 Compton's Cafeteria riot mm. milestone incident in the gay rights movement preceded Stonewall by a few years. What were your experiences or your memories of that time? I was a young conservative graduating from college in, uh, in North Carolina and was joining the Navy and had no connection at all to the gay rights movement except that I was beginning to have sexual experiences with men. And that's what my politics grew out of when I realized that I, how foolish I'd been to stay a virgin until 25 because I couldn't do it the way I was supposed to do it. And I moved to a town where gay and straight alike, every San Franciscan I met thought I was being far too hysterical about my gayness. Hysterical I, in, a, in what in, way? In the sense that um, they said big deal or not exactly big deal. The, my best woman friend said big effing deal. By what she meant, uh, half the people in this town are gay. This is nothing for you to be afraid of, you know. The scales fell from my eyes and I began to live that way. And what impact, I know it's a very neat question, but sometimes we choose an anniversary and we say, oh, this had a great impact. Do you believe that Stonewall riots had? No, I think it's symbolic. I mean, it was chosen. Gay pride parades across the country began to use that as a, as a marker for when the movement started. There was resistance earlier in New York and, and San Francisco, the Compton's riots, it's just simply marking the point where people say, we're not going to take this BS anymore. We're not going to let you come into our bars and harass us and drag us off in paddy wagons. We're not putting up with it. Here's a, another date, or at least a, another perceived milestone. Tell me what you think. The Economist, among others, but we were proud to have campaigned for equal marriage. It's on a cover in 2004, which in some ways feels very recent, but actually there were not many uh, covers in sort of yeah. a lot of mainstream media around at the time. I'm just showing it to you there, that the case for gay marriage, two very handsome dudes there on, on the cover getting married. You lived through that. How much did gay marriage and the acceptance, or at least widespread acceptance of gay marriage change? Well, it was a big, it was a personal thing for me because I got to marry the love of my life. We, I could have been more romantic about it. We were going to Canada for some reason, and I said, why don't we just keep driving and, and get married in Vancouver? Then we had to get married again because it, it wasn't legal in America. So we had several marriages. And you liked it so all, much you just kept in it, it was, it was all They all made me cry. It was, How long have you been married? 15. Well, this, is, this could be the proof of it now. 15 years. I mean, the proof if I remember how long I've been married. Uh, Chris is <laughs> Long used, enough to Chris begin is to usually forget. here to say, no, it's 14 years. It's 15. <laughs> no, it's all over now. <laughs> yeah, I've ruined it. And Christopher Tenney, your husband, Chris, yeah. is HIV positive. Yeah. Is there a generation gap on this issue because of the generation of men who were particularly affected by it? Do you feel that that is something that the argument, the debate around the sensitivities are different now? Well, if you mean the younger generation, mm -hmm. Christopher is 15 years younger than me, so no. What is he, 30? What am I saying? I think <laughs> He's 28 what, years younger than I What were the relationship maths we're going to have to yeah. <laughs> sort that out later? Yeah. Uh, so he's younger. He's old enough that he's, you know, had to suffer the stigma of being HIV positive. 
The young ones today want to relate to that tragedy, but can't really. You can't. There's no way you can know what it felt like to have all of your friends dying, to think you might be dying next. It was a situation of terrible panic. And it was going on in what looked to us like the complete disillusion of our of our rights, that unkind people were using AIDS as a way to say, you know, mm-hmm. see what they get up to. Uh, all this hell and brimstone judgment was being handed down. We have a scene in The New Tales that we're at a dinner party scene where a young gay man corrects the older gay man because they're using politically incorrect terms. And the older gay man snaps back and says, you don't know what it was like for us. It's a very uncomfortable scene and, and, and a very powerful one because it's kind of the truth. Um, what has changed? I mean, this bringing us back to your stories and we're in the Stonewall commemoration year and it's taking place in the America where Donald Trump is president. How much does it matter in terms of the things that you've stood for and advocated for all your life? I hate the hell out of him. I mean, I'm just <laughs> it disgusts me. I've just moved to London and I'm so happy with this beautiful civilized place. And to watch was, was him, Donald Trump a big factor in your decision? Uh, he, it was a, a factor. It felt good to get away from a country where the hate that he was vocalizing was I mean, I called him responsible for the shootings, for the fact that we can't outlaw guns. Well, in fairness, that preceded Donald Trump as well, huh? Yeah, well, we've loved guns for a long time, but he's in bed with the people who, with the NRA and the people who promote it. We're we're held captive by that, I think. Every place has its issues. I think you're about to find out if you just moved to London. There's a bit bit of the frying pan to fire about that at the moment. I know. People keep telling me, but I'm loving it because there's theater and uh, parks. You can come. We we offer counseling for people who've just moved to London. (laughs) (laughs) What was once referred to as gay pride is now, in many places, simply pride. It's more inclusive. Some people think that is a general trend, perhaps, towards everything being in together, a kind of magic mix of progressive causes. And others sort of wonder, we also have a lot of labelling of different groups and people slightly separating out by identity. Do you feel that you tend to warm to one one or the other instinct? Rather than do the whole alphabet thing, I like to say queer, because by my definition, that includes everybody. And that feels- Christopher Isherwood, who was sort of my mentor, the great British writer, told me one time, you've got to use the word queer when you describe yourself. It embarrasses our enemies. And uh, I, I took that up. And in terms of the city, you wrote for one of your characters. We're going to be, I mean, people like you and me, we're going to be 50-year-old libertines in a world full of 20-year-old Calvinists. You're 75 now. You still feel that way. It's not as bad as I feared. I think a lot of young people are very, very smart about uh, how the world works. They know more. They have more access to information. There are some, you know, the Calvinists are a big problem in America. That's not going to go away anytime soon, I think. Uh, Mr. Mopin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Anne. And as ever, we want to know what you think. As Pride marches on... What are the most urgent obstacles to progress? Does Barbary Lane offer a model for how we might get there? And what has your own experience been? Do tell us about it, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. If you'd like to read more of The Economist, do subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.